0: Flugelbinder create educational programmes to create change for people and planet. Flugelbinder started with Brad and Ian building conservation trips for students due to their love for the natural world. But they soon realised the power of travel to connect young people to global issues. It's through these connections and first-hand experiences that real change can happen. Flugelbinder performs sustainability audits, design and deliver workshops and run sustainable trips all over the world... Educating students about their social and environmental impact. Flugelbinder, changing travel for future
1: generations. Hello there, welcome to Jogpod. This is a change from the usual uh, in our series because today we're joined by two guests. So I'm going to have to do some refereeing, I think, here. We're joined by uh, Professor Tariq Jazeel and Hina Robinson. And together, we're attempting to examine some of the issues around decolonizing geography. So Hina, you're a teacher of geography with more than 20 years experience and Tariq, uh, a professor of human geography at UCL. And your research explores the post-colonial politics of nation identity and belonging in both British and South Asian contexts. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, it's a treat in store for me. Uh, When I looked at what we were going to talk about, it's such a complex range of issues. They're all interconnected, but they're all within that realm of geography. The overarching theme, I think, is about the notion of decolonizing geographical knowledge. But when I was looking at this, I thought we, we can't really examine that without Exploring what colonization is, and then empire, and then we look at diversity and identity and development, and then what bringing all those together, and and what thinking geographically means. So, Hina, what to you? What's geography to you? And 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 I'm going to add a little second question: What do you think students think it is?
2: Well,
0: they're two quite different um, things, especially with students, depending on where. What they've done, you know, in secondary, what they've done at primary, they have a very specific view of geography, which is almost always incorrect. Um, And they go through school thinking that. So the classic thing that people say is that geography is everything. And some people, I know some geographers hate that. But it is sort of true because it's how the world is, why it's like that and how everything is interconnected. And we need to know those things, both environmental, human all the interconnections to be able to look at how we can deal with issues in the world and how we can move forward um, and the future of communities, mm-hmm. of the physical environment, of the world in general. Everything has been interconnected. I think geography is exploring that interconnection. Um, Students don't realise that until they're taught proper geography at secondary by proper geography teachers. Um, They have a very different view of it. And I don't really understand where that view comes from, apart from their exposure at primary school, really. And also what their parents have said is what they studied geography when they were young um, has quite a big impact.
1: Yes, that's quite interesting. Uh, Twice while we've been doing this podcast, I've had people saying to me, teachers say to the uh, parents, say to the teachers, I wish geography had been like that in my day. That's interesting because some of the some of those who' be saying that now would be people I taught sort of <laughs> nearly forty years ago <laughs> when we were looking at um, making geography different, looking at in investigative geography, looking at looking perhaps at thinking geographically. How would you see it terry because you get you get them much later. they've gone through that process
2: yeah um. Thanks for the question, John. It's one of those um, things that can can mean a lot of different things to different people, actually. So it's a big question. It can entail lots of answers. Uh, We study the world as geographers. We study the relationships between humans and their environments, study the relationships between society and space course, uh, the word itself is a literal translation of the idea of earth writing. So so there are lots of different answers to the question, I think. But in some senses, I I think for me, geography is most powerful and meaningful when I think about it as the difference that it means, uh, the difference that it makes, sorry, to think spatially about social or environmental phenomena. So for me, I think one of the key skill sets we possess as geographers is this ability to to think spatially um, about the various kinds of things um, that Hina's already referred to and that others might um, want to bring up as well. I I guess I would also add that it's, in some senses, it's perhaps both a strength and a weakness of the discipline that we would all have slightly different answers to that question. You're absolutely right that people um, come up to me and, and, you know, they see the kind of work that we do in a geography department at university now, and they say, oh, I wish geography was like that in my day. And, and basically what they mean is, you can do anything if you're a geographer, you can study anything if you're a geographer. And that's both liberating, but I would also want to kind of claim that we have a particular kind of skill set as geographers. And I do think it's that ability to think spatially.
1: Uh, this morning, I spent my time about, about, about an hour talking to a colleague about mass wasting and slope stability and landscape formation and sheer forces and sheer strengths. And it, they, they do seem almost entirely different. But I want to come back to that, um, that idea of spatiality in a bit and, and the idea of, of what it means to think geographically. But there's another element that I wanted to ask you about, Tariq, because you've talked about this, and it's, it's this idea of, a, of an attentiveness to geographical stories, which adds another element.
2: Yeah, well, as I, as I just said, um, the word geography... Actually, if you think about its origins, it comes from the Greek, Geographia, which, which translates to, to earth writing, translates as, as earth writing. And I think, you know, there's, there's probably a couple of different ways that we can think about this notion of earth writing. And one is this idea of correctly describing the earth, right? So, so as geographers, we go out there and we provide accurate and correct descriptions of the earth. But the other way of thinking about this notion of earth writing is that it's simply that when we're doing this kind of description, when we write about the earth um, when we write about society, even we're producing stories, we're producing narratives about the earth, we're producing its meaning in various kinds of ways. So this idea of storytelling um, as, as geography, I think is really important. And I think it's important because of the politics of of representation, actually. So, you know, one of the key questions that we can begin to ask ourselves then is historically, whose spatial stories have come to matter? Then, you know, going forward, it can hopefully, um, thinking about geography this way as, as the production of spatial stories can hopefully empower many more people from different kinds of communities to think that their stories matter. And they do matter, I think. So I do think that this um, idea of thinking about geography as the production of spatial stories, producing meaning, is a really important and, and powerful thing to get our students to think about, actually.
1: I was going to ask, does geography matter? But you've answered that one. And of course we're geographers, so of course we're going to say geography matters. But I'm going to ask, a think, Hina, why does it matter?
0: Matters because it's shaped the way that our world is, and the way that we live, and the way that we understand each other. And again, that whole idea of you know, spatial differences—it's so easy to live in a bubble. Um, obviously, that word's got different connotations at the moment. But the idea that you know you know what's going on in your own life and your own local area, but especially the area that I work in. They don't have a wide range of different ethnic backgrounds and it's not something that they're really exposed to. So it matters because we're the people at certainly at secondary level that are teaching them directly about the fact that other parts of the world matter and that there's lots of different things going on in the world that will matter to you. And as you grow up, you need to be passionate about making sure that certain things happen in the way they do, you know, looking at things like the environment. So it does matter. Um, and while they can do that in an indirect way in other subject areas, they don 't really get that outside of school in general, um, and so it 's up to us to make sure they understand it matters it, it's something it 's quite difficult to explain really, unless you 're actually trying to teach a particular aspect of it
1: no i think i I think I understand that one we have to be careful about what narrative we present to them, otherwise where disregarding certain stories and people feel that their voice hasn't been heard.
0: Absolutely. And it's making sure that everyone has the opportunity to have their story heard, however way we do that. But also, I think we're responsible for making sure that everyone's had the opportunity to have the story heard of people who don't normally get their story heard. And that's what decolonising geography has got an aspect to.
1: Yeah, which uh, which is where thinking geographically as well comes in hand in hand with this idea of of looking at what we do do and what what version of, of the story we're presenting. Tariq, I, I, this is really interesting. I wish I'd done your first lecture. Your first lecture to the UCL Geography Undergraduates is all about thinking geographically, getting them to think in a different way. And, and you question what geography is, what it means to think geographically. But then when I read about it, it goes from everything from dance to woolly mammoths to fossils to, it must be a real experience for them when they come in.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, uh, as you said, it's one of the very first lectures that UCL undergraduate geography students have. And um, we, stri- we try to stress to our students, as I've just done here, actually, um, I guess the importance of realising that everybody has a geographical imagination. Right? So not just those people who've written the textbooks that they're reading that every single student sitting in the lecture in front of us um, in that lecture theatre has a geographical imagination and it's important that we begin to to bring those geographical imaginations into representation. So I speak for example about um, the British Asian electronic dance music that you've just mentioned I I, I draw on some of my own previous research to get the students to think about how we might begin to think about British Asian dance music as a kind of map, actually, a a spatial story, insofar as its hybridities, its kind of mixed upness, speaks of a particular kind of British South Asian experience, experience, a particular kind of British South Asian modernity. My colleague, Anson Mackay, as he said, he, he talks about Um, the 19th century fossil collector and paleontologist Mary Anning, um, whose hugely important scientific work on West Dorset's coast was almost overlooked by an exclusively male scientific geological community in the 19th century simply because she was a working-class woman. And we also talk about different kinds of map projections for example, so we talk about um, the standardization of Particular kinds of map projections, we talk about the standardisation of the the um the, that conventional map projection based on Gerardus Mercator's sixteenth century uh, projection of the of the the whole earth rolled flat which holds Europe firmly at the centre and distorted the relative size and proportions of the land masses and we encourage our students to realize that this is a map projection that's been naturalized that it's been taken for granted historically because of its european colonial origins right and 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 although it might seem like a natural way of thinking about um global space it's a very cultural form of uh, of of geographical imagination so what we're trying to do is is both is two things really firstly to Get students to understand that dominant geographical imaginations have a history, they have a locatedness, um, they're cultural well before they're natural in many senses, and secondly we get students to think that you can begin to think geographically about anything and that every single one of those students in that lecture theatre has a geographical imagination.
1: Ina, have you? did I see on your blog that the, the, uh, the- clip from the west wing where they're doing a presentation about the
0: um that was um, Rachel
1: I put that on her ah right
0: yeah because that's th- th- that
1: impact of and that's only from
2: the Mercator projection to the peters projection people have you seen it Tariq? it's it's very funny i have i actually use it in some of in another lecture <laughs> as well
1: because <laughs> yeah. I, I i've been using with some primary school teachers i use the orthograph map and it blows people's minds when they first see it and the UK is, um, now I get this right, it's up, oh, it doesn't matter because we're not on screen, but it's up on the top. The UK is up in the, completely in the top right-hand corner. And getting students to have a look at that is, uh, is a really interesting way of, of getting them to think about how we, how we display the, the globe on a, on a flat surface. And then the, um, the Spillhouse projection is the other one that's really interesting at the moment, and that's, um, Athelstan Spillhouse, I think from 1942. But he was looking at contiguous oceans, which is really useful for when we're trying to work out why sea level rise affects everybody. Because if you look at an ordinary map, you lose, um, well, you lose the Pacific Ocean, really. So the whole thing gives you that entirely different perspective. Um, And of course, Tariq, you were talking about it being Eurocentric and reinforcing that Number one, this is the, the here is the important area in the middle of the map. When you're teaching here, what projections do you use?
0: So it's an interesting one. I'd, I'd love to use lots of different projections, and I do talk about um, the advantages disadvantages of some of the main ones, the mainstream ones. Um, but for us in secondary teaching, one of the key reasons we use those. Um, the Mercator and the uh, Robinson maps is because of location of countries, because their un- their knowledge of where places are is poor, and I would say that is the same across all secondary schools. They a lot of students don't know their locations and where places are in relative. to to others and it is we need to teach them we need to make sure they know their continents we need to make sure they know where the key places are and it's only after that point that we can start looking at those maps that are very different um, projections so it's more like a level that I would introduce maps Gail Peter's map I would show earlier on because it's a different perspective Um, and we certainly talk about the eurocentricity of the maps absolutely Um, especially when we're looking at plate tectonics and we're looking at um, Pacific-centred map as well, so that is something we do talk about, but honestly at the moment the key focus is do they know where places are, can they name countries, where, what continents are they on, um, where they are in relation to each other, um, and we'll talk about the British Empire later, but the map of the British Empire, you know, how did we get to these countries that we colonised, and that is much more key um, at the level we're looking at, and once they get that, yes, we can then look at different projections and the impl- implications of those.
2: And if I may just jump in there because I think, you um, raises a key point, which is that maps are effectively communication devices. Um, and, and that's a really important point to get across to, to students. So, you know, when we try to show them different kinds of map projections or indeed get them to think about mapping in more expanded ways and more fluid ways. The key point always has to be that the maps have to communicate geographical knowledge. Um, And, and, you know, we we do have, we we do live in a world where we have to work with variations of the Mercator projection, right? Uh, And it's important to use them, uh, uh, as well as um, critically engaging with them as well. Mm. And then thinking a little bit about how we might be able to begin to communicate our own geographical imaginations through other cartographic devices.
1: But we are then agreeing that we, the maps we use, present a Eurocentric story to begin with, and help with that depiction of, I've got one up here on the wall, of empire and colonisation. This is from 1912, of wall map I've got up here. Um, and geographers did rather well out of that, really, I suppose, um, depicting the empire and showing where places were. And in it all, I, I suppose, geography grew with colonisation. Now, if we're going to talk about decolonization i think we ought to just spend a bit of time talking about what colonization is because it might be an unfamiliar term to students they might have heard of the british empire or the commonwealth but i don't i'm not sure if they even know what these mean particularly so how do you deal with that Hina?
0: so any topics that involve a knowledge of that so the human basically all human topics that we teach i will always start off with um that as a basis so you know just taking my example of my teaching week this week um on monday i was doing development gap with year 10 nigeria with year 11 human rights with year 12 every single lesson i was repeating myself because i was like who knows who's heard of the british empire first of all not even who knows what it is just who's heard of it who's heard the term who's heard the term colony and the numbers that know it are very small um, so depending on the age group, they may or may not have done it in history. So some of them say, oh, yeah, we've heard of that in history, but do they understand what the implications are? A lot of them don't. Some do, some fully understand it, but I do always have to just remind them, we just have to go over it. This is what the British Empire was. It wasn't just Britain that had the empire. There were other countries. We, de- Depending on time, we take a look at the maps. Um, why did they get to be able to have the empires is really important. Um, And then the implications for the colonies, what it meant to be a colony is also really important. So it does have to be talked about. I tend to then go off on a complete tangent and we look at other examples of a similar vein that's happened more recently. So, again, the number of students that didn't know about South Africa's apartheid is really high. So, again, I feel it's my duty to make sure they know that. happened and the implications of that um, and the long-term implications so yeah before we can decolonize they have to understand what happened and why it happened and certainly more recently linking that into the Black Lives Matter movement as well Mm. which is something they all do know about.
1: Do you do anything about who's presenting that story to them because yeah
0: so we look at you know why do we how do we know that this is the case and, and the fact that it is Eurocentric and would the people that were colonised have a completely different viewpoint, if it's their story being told, how would they look at it? And with the year groups where I have a little bit more leeway, so Key Stage 3 particularly, or have, we, have, you know, we do look at that. We say, right, if you're writing this story, and what happened and the impact of it from the point of view of the people in the, whichever country we're looking at, what would you say? Um, and, you know, we do critically look at what the differences would be. A um, bit more difficult GCSE because we've got a syllabus to stick to, but even then I do tend to spend a little bit longer on the start of the development gap than maybe time should allow because they need that as an understanding to move forward onto other parts of that of that unit. Um, a level wise I'm, yet, I'm teaching the human side of it this year, I've generally been a physical teacher, so um, interesting to see where I can take that.
1: Part of my lack of knowledge, I, I didn't realise that India was treated differently from other colonies. That was new when I was reading about this. I I hadn't realised. I think when I was looking at what Stephen Legg was doing, who you've worked with, haven't you, Tariq?
2: I have, yeah. Yeah, Steve and I have done a lot of work together, actually. What what do you do
1: about students needing to to know why countries colonised others? Is that part of what you both do? I
0: do, certainly, um, because it's important for why there's a development gap now. So, yeah, we definitely have to look at Look at that, because otherwise I don't understand why some countries are struggling to develop post-colonialisation. So once they gained independence, some of the issues they faced were all to do with the reasons they were colonised in the first place.
1: I think I was reading something again. I think I got it from following what you put about about Haiti and why they were so poor, and understanding that the position they were left in after all the reparations that they had to pay, which took them decades, and by the time they'd finished, they were. They were impoverished with then rulers who decided, oh, I can't, I can't be doing this. It's it's too hard a problem. I'll just see what I can cream off, and, and a series of corrupt rulers.
0: And Haiti are a perfect example of where um, you've got that interconnection between the environment and um, the impacts of people, because not only if they had their the history which has made life difficult, but also their geographical location and you know um, tectonics and weather hazards that have affected them and the two go hand in, you know, two together have worked to uh, make life very difficult for Haiti. So it's important that students know that as a background, you know, it's not always just one element that has led to what we have now. Um, Mm. It can be a combination of things.
2: I was just going to add that, um, you know, for for me teaching at um, the undergraduate and master's level, I think one of the reasons that it's hugely important to talk about um the history of colonization is is also to get students to understand and to enter into the historical imagination of the fact that the, the nation states that we take for granted, those kinds of um, um, global geographical imaginations of nation states around the world that we take for granted, were created through colonization, right? So it's not just a case of one country going and colonizing another pre-existing country, it's the colonization process producing um, uh, the the countries that we have today, the nation state system that we have today. So, you know, the point here is that colonization goes right back. It's so embedded in the way we think about the world and that we understand the world. Um, And I think that's a really important point to get across to to our students as well.
1: Sometimes there's such bizarre lines on maps where the, the French and the British sat together and said, right, well, here's where it goes, ignoring local indigenous populations entirely really and drawing a line through between <laughs> two areas where they lived. Okay, I think perhaps we are on to decolonising geography now. It's not a new idea. I don't know how far back it goes. I think I, I was first aware of it, perhaps in 2017, because the Royal Geographical Society's annual conference theme was was about decolonizing geographical knowledges and opening out geography to the world. Tariq, why do we need to decolonize geography?
2: Well, I think in bare terms because of geography's disciplinary history actually, right? It, it's, it's connectedness with histories of colonialism, imperialism and exploration. So geography was, was a subject, our subject, that we we love and feel a passion for. Um, historically, you know, geography was something of a tool for colonization. And therefore, you know, historically, authoritative geographical knowledge production has been the purview of a quite select demographic and, and those those who were closely associated with imperialism, with histories of imperialism and colonization project. And I think we need to correct that, actually. You know, we are passionate about the subject for good reason we think that thinking as we've already discussed we think there's a necessity to think geographically we think there's a joy in in working and 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 thinking geographically uh, so i think you know the the imperative to decolonize geography is about opening and pluralizing geographical knowledge production uh, as i said earlier the spatial stories that we tell about the world matter uh, and and we need to hear. We need to pluralize pluralize those stories. I think. So that would be my answer to the question. I've read some people's arguments against
1: and saying, "Oh, it's making geography too political." Um, and I wonder what you both thought about that. The, the decolonizing of it, it was is a political decision rather than a
2: geographical one. Well, I, 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 so I, imposing that question, in raising that in raising that point, I think one. one has to erroneously presuppose that geography was never political in the first place, right? And as I just said, it was always um, connected with the colonisation project, with imperialism. Um, And, you know, the Royal Geographical Society are quite open about their own history in relation to that, for example, and are working hard to try to change that now. And I would also emphasise, a lot of my work has been hugely influenced by the literary theorist Edward Said, and um, he, 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 in one of his early books, Orientalism, a very famous book, he made, uh, well, he tried to blur the distinction between what he referred to as pure knowledge and political knowledge, uh, and effectively argue that, you know, there, there is no knowledge that is free of politics, actually. That all knowledge is, is, is political in some sense. And so, um, artistic, literary endeavors, uh, the humanities, etc. this is all political knowledge, actually. Right? And, and and that's one of the points that um, we ch- we certainly try to to get home to to students actually that um, geography is political all the way back actually. Yes. Would you agree, Hina?
0: Yeah, you can argue that the curriculum is political. You know, it sets the curriculum is set by political means it, it, it so yeah it, it exactly what Tarek said it's always been political and uh, you know geography has always had a political element to it um and it's still very relevant in that sense so you can't say you're politicizing it by saying you're decolonizing it you're just making it you're covering all angles that should have already been covered in the first place and ensuring that it's not eurocentric thinking ensuring that it is taking on the views of the whole world Um, and those views that may not have always been heard, and taking on the different stories. So yeah, it's always been political.
2: Yeah, and I would also just add that, you know, there was a real, let's make no mistake, there's a real politics in doing nothing, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: At the GA conference, you, Terry, you gave us a, a really positive way to start to look at geography in different ways. So it was about stories, but it was also about, we, we, we talked right at the beginning about using music and dance and different ways to blur those sorts of boundaries. So we, be, we go beyond political boundaries and we look at, perhaps, as, as people move, boundaries that are shaped in a different way. So... We will do a link to that. That'll be really useful. So people who are listening to this podcast can go straight back to that link and to the other uh, work, Hina, that you've done as well. But just talk us through briefly what that is, Terry. What is it that, you've, uh, that you, you did in that session with the British Asian dance music? That oh, was fascinating.
2: Well, I, I um, so the work, the research that, that, that I spoke about um, in that conference paper, it's really an engagement with the form of British Asian dance music that emerged in the nineties, the two thousands or so. Um, and it's really, well, as well as engaging with the form of the music, as I said earlier, to try to think about the mixed and hybrid forms of instrumentation, different styles of music that are combined together in, in one song, for example, or one album. So music from, um, uh, ragas from northern India combined with drum and bass and jungle rhythms for example or dance music anthems etc all combined into one piece of music so thinking about the uh, the form of the music in in that sense as a hybrid and mixed up production um, is one way just one way of really emphasizing to students that um, there are forms of cultural production in them that have um, Spatial flows in them, embedded in them, things that come from all over the place. And those forms of music are born from a particular second generation uh, or first generation British South Asian diaspora experience. Um, So that's one thing I was trying to to argue in that paper or show in in that particular presentation. The other thing as well, and I think this is really important, is to think about what this music begins to do when it gets airtime or when it it goes out into the public, um, when people begin to listen to it. And there's a real politics there, right? Because I think, you know, it's really important to think about what it means when British South Asian dance music begins to get played on Radio One or whatever other Um, big national or commercial radio stations there might be when particular albums begin to chart or particular songs begin to chart and what you do is you see an unfolding of popular culture you see an emergence of uh, British South Asian aesthetics or or, uh, experience is another word for British South Asian experience and um, uh, British South Asian patterns in popular culture that was previously a lot whiter. Right. So I, I'm interested in in what these forms of cultural production produce as they enter into the world, mm. as people maybe even start to dance differently to different types of music, etc. You know, and, and we might think about dancing as as a and we should think about dancing as a as a fun, very apolitical activity. But actually I, I would also argue There's a politics to the way we dance in various forms of space, right? There's a politics to the way that music is listened to and played in public and how that music then changes the fabric of the publics in which it's played. So that's the kind of thing I was trying to argue in that um, paper that you referred to that I gave at the GA conference.
1: Do you remember Monsoon? That might be before your time.
2: Do you remember
1: uh, what, sorry? Monsoon, the uh, Ever So Lonely, that, that track that, uh, when it went on to Top of the Pops, people were really quite struggling to dance to it. It was... Um, Don't think it, I do. <laughs> I then you know what might, year you know, that I was. Do. I, I remember it. And uh, it was interesting because Sheila Chandra was the lead singer um, and she was born in Clapham but she had an Indian father and a half Indian, half English mother. And she was well aware, I got a quote from her saying, if it's successful, well, it was, of course, it could add another more moderating influence. It become a talking point in the Indian community because before Indians had often got their music from English, from Indian language films, those sorts of soundtracks. So they had a topic of conversation that was different from, from English youth and it started to bring people more together.
2: She was very aware of the politics of of her music as another quote I recall from her another interview I recall her giving where she talks about people dancing to her music and um, there's a moment in one of her songs Ever So Lonely where the synth instruments cut out and the people on the dance floor in these kind of UK clubs or, or wherever it might be top of the Pops dance floor, for example, find themselves essentially dancing to an Indian raga and they don't know that they're doing it. Right. And that was the really subversive thing for her. So she was well aware of what she was doing and the kinds of change that she was hoping to precipitate with her music.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is really interesting. It's a really interesting way of thinking of geography in a different way that makes the curriculum more inclusive. Um, Hina how do you approach that idea of making geography more inclusive and, and including this sort of thinking geographically, this critical thinking that we've talked about?
0: So again, it's down to just choice of examples that you use. I think from a secondary geography point of view, it's looking at where are you teaching about and who are you teaching that to? Now, The thing the problem issue is you've got a lot of different ethnic minority groups, but they are second third generation now. So a lot of them don't necessarily have much knowledge of their grandparents, etc., previous backgrounds for various reasons. They may not have been interested, or their parents have tried to become very British. There's lots of different reasons for it. And actually they like to be able to have a place where they are going to be taught or we're talking about things that they know vaguely about and want to know more about. So it is sort of that making sure that spatial awareness is there um, to cover different locations that may be relevant to the students we're teaching. And I think it's really important that teachers do look at the makeup of their school um, to try and include different backgrounds and children from different places. Obviously really important if you have got refugee communities and or lots of first generation migrants, but I think it's even more important when you've got those that are second, third generation onwards because they don't necessarily have that exposure or want to have that exposure. So I think to make it more inclusive, we need to be encouraging that. And I think from you know when I chose to do geography at A level and onto university for someone from my background, um, That was really unusual. And a lot of people would think at the time thought I was taking a soft option because we should be doctors and dentists and accountants and engineers and lawyers. You know, what am I going to do with geography? It's not going to make me any money. It's not going to give me a career path. And, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily about us making geography more accessible to all. It's about changing that mindset of making people understand what we do is important and what we've always done is important. It's always been important. It's just making people realize that it's important. Um, and you know, that money isn't everything. It doesn't matter if you haven't got a a profession that makes you lots of money. So that comes from those cultures as well. And that is true of um, certain West African cultures too, as well as Asian cultures, you know, these things aren't seen. I saw, um, somebody was Twitter, you know, the black geographers on Twitter, they've got a a big presence and somebody had sort of celebrated something and saw someone else comment, oh, you should be doing a STEM subject, you know, what do you want to do geography for? And, you know, it's exactly that kind of attitude that we need to change. So making it more real to them and making it more relevant, if we can, should hopefully help that a little bit.
1: It's interesting you said that because when I was programme manager at the Geographical Association, I would get a reasonable number of parents ringing in and Quite often, from Asian backgrounds, saying, "I want my son, daughter to be a lawyer, uh, a doctor, and they want to do geography. Can you tell me why geography is worthwhile for them to do? Because I can't, I can't see the relevance of it." So you've reinforced that. Really, that's something I've I have come across, which is interesting. But one for it takes a long time to tackle. I think. We're probably coming to the end actually now. So I'm going to ask you one, one final big question. If you're wanting to, to advise teachers who are trying to encourage their students to think geographically and critically, what are the key pieces of advice that you'd like to leave them with?
0: Subject knowledge is really important, I think. You know we need you have to have the teachers have to have a full understanding of the importance of what has happened and why we need to decolonize it in the first place um and i think with geography we've got an increasing number of non-specialists teaching the subject so it's even more important that they have that background and understanding geography as a subject naturally lends itself to critical thinking um that is what geographers do We are questioning constantly. We're applying what we know to different situations. Um, And so that critical thinking should, in theory, come naturally. But I think what we have to remember is that our students are capable of a lot lot more than some people give them credit for. And they are able to apply um, knowledge and understanding from one thing to another. And I think breaking down of stereotypes is so, so important um, because they've got a lot of stereotypes, a lot of misconceptions that come from... Parents, but also which have come from the media and we need them to understand that those stereotypes aren't necessarily true And nothing makes me more proud than when I'm teaching a class and we're talking about migrants For example and the impact of migrants and I'm asking them, right? What are some of the stereotypes that people think and actually in the last couple of years? I've got students not able to come up with any any issues and That makes me really proud because they're not saying well, they're taking our jobs and they're not saying um, you know, they're, they're coming in and getting our benefits, which we've had in the past, but now they're not saying that. And when I say people think this, or actually people feel that there's going to be ethnic tensions and racial issues, and they look at me and they're like, why would that happen? We don't get why, why, why would that be an issue? And that really makes me think we've got some future here, we've got good hope here. Because if they're thinking that now, that's going to continue. So I think teachers need to make sure they understand exactly where misconceptions can come from, do their subject knowledge, give those students that chance to think critically and break down those stereotypes themselves. Um, and then we can move forward.
1: I was just looking on Twitter yesterday and somebody had tweeted about using the factfulness, the, um, the Gapminder factfulness quiz.
0: Absolutely brilliant. <laughs>
1: but, but they still said, Oh, my students were, were about as bad as the, well, they were worse than the chimps. <laughs> they, were, they were as bad as, uh, as at least the audience if not the media but it was interesting on the, I don't know if you've seen the the TED talk but um, uh, the journalists who present us with that information are the ones who have the bleakest view of the world and they're the ones who are reinforcing that stereotype that uh, we have to challenge so and
0: actually books like Factfulness I mean the kind of things that that they come up with I mean the one of the big stories, that, the one that sticks in my mind is the Tunisian houses, which look like they're half built. They're not half built. It's just that every time they have disposable income, they're not putting it in banks necessarily, they're buying bricks and they're putting those bricks on their houses. And actually the more every time they're just adding and adding and adding to build that second floor. And that's not showing that they're, they've got issues with development, that's showing they are developing. And it is that taking those stories and turning them on their head and making sure you understand what they're showing. I think it's really important that we look for the positives in things like that and try and challenge that pessimistic worldview. Difficult at the moment for other reasons, but in general, we should be challenging that pessimistic worldview at all times.
1: Tariq, I just want to ask you again, just to to perhaps clarify this about the idea of thinking geographically. What do we mean uh, in in terms of being perhaps an analytical disposition? What do you look for in your students? when you think, right, you're doing
2: it? Uh, Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the whole point of a undergraduate degree in geography is to really try to nurture and hone those those skills of thinking geographically. Um, And I think that one key element of that is to think about the geographical knowledge and phenomena that we take for granted and scratch beneath the surface of it and when you do that you begin to see the kind of historical accretions um, that have got us to to where we are and you begin to realize that those geographies aren't natural aren't, aren't um unchangeable they're historical they're cultural for the most part and and therefore subject to change you know we can remake those uh, some of those most sticky and pernicious geographical narratives and stories and it you know fills me with real um confidence and and it, it's quite inspiring to hear Hina talk about her, her classroom right and the kinds of stories that um that the kids are are not being subject to as much these days and um, the scaremongering stories uh, the stereotypes etc and that's really that's really really hopeful I think I think there's some great work going on out there, um, via networks like the the Decolonising Geography Teachers Network, for example, um, that are doing some really great kind of thinking and resource work around how um, teaching geography at schools may work towards the goal of, of decolonisation more readily. I think that's 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 fantastic. It's hugely important. Um, I also think that we probably as geography instructors at all levels, we need to think really carefully and strategically about how the task of decolonising the discipline, how it it kind of articulates with power and the powerful institutions in which we work uh, and that we work with, how it joins up with those, how the task of decolonisation joins up with those already embedded institutions and infrastructures of power. Uh, and and therefore you know think about how we can in our small ways uh, uh, um, implement change and begin to produce change to keep unfolding the the discipline so that the ways that we think geographically might be more productive more open uh, more inclusive in the future and i think we also need to recognize that you know no matter how much we do there's always more that needs to be done actually Um, You know, we, this is a, this is a, uh, this is a long ball game. But safe in the hands of geographers, I think. (laughs) Um, My chief executive, when I first started
1: the GA, Professor David Lambert, I know I've quoted this before, but he used to say how geographers make decisions with confident uncertainty and in the light of new information, will completely reconsider and perhaps change their direction entirely. And it's about being open to change and open to new ideas and open to different thinking that we attack and challenge the danger of the single story. Listen, that's been absolutely fascinating. Again, talking to both of you. I always come away from these conversations uplifted. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Mark from the membership team here at the GA. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of JOGPOD produced for you by the Geographical Association. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Jogpod on your podcast app. And if you're interested in learning more about what the GA has to offer, head over to our website at geography.org.uk.